The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. He ascended into hell. Christ, our living head, will one day come again. Just the living and the dead I believe and trust in Him I will trust in my Redeemer Sing of His love that lasts forever Know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my foundation I will trust in Him I will trust in Him Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In parts one through three of this episode, we began to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Megachurches. We dismissed this title as a classic example of faulty logic and an incorrect worldview. We also began to debunk and dismiss the various logical fallacies in the article itself. In order to understand this episode and the context of the remaining portions of this podcast and its episodes, it will be necessary, if you have not already, to listen to and be familiar with the preceding episodes and their content in order to move forward with contextual discernment. In episode 3, we just concluded correcting the first five sentences in this article. In this episode, we move forward and pick up where we left off. The author says the following, Put it this way, 
Godless non-church going Denmark mandates four weeks of maternity leave before childbirth and 14 weeks afterward for mothers. Parents of newborn children are assisted with well-baby nurse practitioner visits in their homes, unquote. Now, you may recall that in the last episode, we had just finished debunking the statement by the author saying, quote, Jesus' time bomb explodes whenever atheists follow Jesus better than most Christians, unquote. Then we move forward in this episode to this statement. Clearly, since the author uses the phrase, quote, put it this way, unquote, the author intends on connecting the two statements and that the Denmark issue is an example of how atheists supposedly, quote, follow Jesus better than most Christians, unquote. So, let's remember that the author's main concern is, quote, following Jesus, unquote. More specifically, let's remember that a Christian's concern, according to the Bible, is knowing having a relationship with and following Jesus, who is God, and his word, which is the Bible. This being the case, the question is, where in God's word does Jesus instruct his followers or demonstrate mandated maternity leave for mothers so that we can then, quote, follow him, unquote? Where does Jesus instruct his followers or demonstrate mandated government assistance for well babies so that we can, quote, follow him. Look, don't get me wrong. We can make the argument that helping mothers who need help is a fine thing. We can make the argument that keeping babies well is a good thing. We can debate whether this is better done in the private sector or by government. But, Nowhere can we find a specific instance in the Bible where Jesus creates an example where earthly government should do these things as detailed by the author, so that we who wish to follow Jesus can do so. More importantly, when we look at the Bible in context, is Jesus, who is God, more interested in how many weeks of maternity leave a mother has than he is in whether or not the mother and child will have eternal life? Does Jesus come to die on the cross for maternity leave, or was it to reconcile fallen man from separation from God? Is Jesus more interested in the physical earthly wellness of a baby than he is the baby's eternal spiritual status? You see, the bigger picture is that even if every mother on the planet had 56 weeks every year of mandated maternity leave, she and the child would still be eternally lost and separated from God, doomed to eternal suffering, if they do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Thus, if society, the government, or anyone else abandons the Bible's primary focus on knowing, honoring, and worshiping Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they have already refused to follow Jesus, regardless of how well-meaning and important the earthly issues may have been that have replaced this. Next, we have the following series of assertions from the author. 
quote, in the pro-life and allegedly family-friendly American Bible Belt, conservative political leaders slash programs designed to help women and children while creating a justifying mythology about handouts versus empowerment. In God-fearing America, the poor are now the takers, no longer the least of these, and many conservative evangelicals side with today's Pharisees, attacking the poor in the name of following the Bible, unquote. Here, the author's ideology is in line with mainstream secular humanism and atheism. It is also in line with those who identify themselves as Christians who elevate certain portions of the Bible, largely out of context, to construct what is commonly referred to as the, quote, social gospel, unquote. In order to make the case, the author refers to Matthew chapter 25, from which the author lifts the phrase, quote, least of these, unquote. In order to correctly understand what Jesus is really talking about, we need to place the phrase into context. The dialogue begins in verse 31 and continues to verse 36 as follows. Quote, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on the, his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungred, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungred, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungred, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungred, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as ye did not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal." Unquote. 
So the first question we need to ask is, who is Jesus talking to above? Well, according to Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, Jesus' disciples came to him privately and asked him to tell them, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus then proceeds to answer the disciples' questions, including giving them several parables in chapter 24 and chapter 25, among which are the above. So the information and meaning is for those who are Jesus' disciples who are following him. The second question is, who does Jesus identify himself as with the above verses where the author's quote appears? Well, by summary, Jesus clearly identifies himself variously as, quote, the Son of Man, unquote. Quote, he sits on a throne, unquote. It is he who has authority to, quote, divide his sheep from the goats, unquote. Quote, king, unquote. And he refers to himself as his, quote, father, unquote. Finally, Jesus declares that it is he who has authority to determine who enters into eternal life and who departs into eternal punishment. Now, the author would have us believe that the, quote, least of these is a criteria by which we know who is and who is not, quote, following Jesus, unquote. The problem is that unless we accept the Bible as the ultimate authority, then we cannot use anything in the Bible to determine anything. Second, if we are going to accept this portion of the Bible as authoritative, then do we not likewise need to adopt the fact that Jesus is God? If not, then how do we simultaneously say that a mere man can determine the ultimate authority regarding, quote, the least of these, unquote? This reveals the intellectual dishonesty of the author's position. By definition, true atheists do not believe that Jesus is Lord, God, and Savior. If he is not, then he has no authority other than his opinion to say who or what is, quote, the least of these, unquote, and who or not. The third question then follows. If I deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if I deny his deity, if I deny that he was crucified, died, and rose from the dead, if I deny that he is Lord, God, King, and Savior, will I still inherit eternal life according to the Bible? No. If despite this I feed, clothe, and visit every human on the planet until no one is ever hungry, naked, or lonely, can I force God to allow me to inherit eternal life? No. Salvation is not by works or deeds. Salvation is a work of God in our hearts by which we confess by His grace that we are completely unable to merit God's favor. We in fact repent of our sin and rebellion and accept God's free gift of imputed righteousness by faith 
in Jesus's completed work on our behalf. Without this as a reality in our lives, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and we will depart into eternal punishment no matter how much we may do to attempt to impress ourselves, others, or God. Once God truly does this work in our hearts, we are transformed by His Spirit which works in us to shine forth fruits, works, and deeds which are the logical proof of salvation, not the basis for it. The fourth question is, if the, quote, least of these, unquote, are not people who inherit eternal life because of their works and deeds, despite knowing who Jesus is, then who are the, quote, least of these, unquote, in context? Well, if we were to expand the context to include Matthew chapter 10 and others, we would see several interesting parallels to chapter 25. In chapter 10, we are told that the disciples had no money, no bag for food or drink. They also had no extra clothing and they had no home to stay in. Jesus predicted that they would often be arrested, thus becoming prisoners. Coincidentally, in chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whomsoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward." Unquote. What we learn from a proper comparison of these and other verses is that the quote, least of these unquote, and the quote, little ones unquote, are both referring to those who are Jesus' disciples, both the immediate ones who knew him during his earthly life as Lord, and those afterwards who know and confess him as Lord. The New Testament scholar Richard Thomas France states the matter this way, quote, The criterion of judgment becomes not merely philanthropy, but people's response to the kingdom of heaven as it is presented to them in the person of Jesus' brothers, it is therefore ultimately a question of their relationship to Jesus himself, unquote. In other words, Jesus is saying that qualification as a sheep, entrance and inheritance of eternal life, is based first on knowing and having a saving relationship with Jesus as one's Lord, God, and Savior. The evidence of true salvation and a relationship with Jesus is that we will be empowered and motivated by his indwelling spirit to the fruit of good works. 
Among these good works will be the desire to serve those truly in need, particularly within the house of faith. In fact, the axiomatic fact is that according to Jesus, the proof that we know him is that we will be motivated to help his disciples. His followers are the least of these, and the little ones in the sense that despite the fact that those who know Jesus are God's children, i.e. little ones, unquote, by adoption, they are nonetheless the, quote, least of these, unquote, because all too often they are pilgrims looking for a better home while being outcasts in this one. So here, in both Matthew chapter 10 and 25, Jesus is referring to the fate of people, i.e. the sheep and the goats, who knowingly or unknowingly provide for the physical needs of his followers, i.e. disciples, as motivated by their relationship with Jesus. Thus, these passages link faith in and a relationship with Jesus and our resulting desire to help others, which naturally flows from said relationship. Now, none of this should be construed to imply that God, the Bible, or true Christians do not or should not be caring for the poor or needy. While the fact is that the context of these particular scriptures, Jesus is not referring to, quote, the least of these, unquote, as the poor and needy generally in the world. Neither Jesus nor the Bible are saying that we should trivialize the Christian's desire and call to care for the marginalized and unprivileged. There are many verses in the Bible which teach a proper perspective of mercy, justice, and love for one's fellow man. Only these two in Matthew are not focused on that. If this is the case, then the atheist and the author have much to answer for because, unfortunately, first, by definition, they do not meet the first and most important criteria necessary of having a personal, saving relationship with Jesus. Second, it is they who have actually violated what Jesus is warning about in context in the verse the author cites. They are the ones who frequently belittle, oppress, defame, attack, disenfranchise, mock, marginalize, and otherwise attempt to deny those who Jesus truly refers to as the, quote, least of these, unquote, and the, quote, little ones, unquote. In the article continuing, the author asks a question and then proceeds to answer it as follows. Quote, so, who is following Jesus? Confronted by the Bible cult called evangelicism, we have a choice. Follow Jesus or follow a book cult. If Jesus is God as evangelicals and Roman Catholics claim he is, then the choice is clear. We have to read the book, including the New Testament, as he did, and Jesus didn't like the quote, Bible, unquote, of his day, unquote. 
Here, apparently, the author believes that the decision for modern mankind is one of a choice between a group of people who feverishly follow and obey a book called the Bible and a group of people who follow a person named Jesus who has nothing to do whatsoever with a book called the Bible. Apparently, the author sees the issue as the Bible versus Jesus. Yet, truth be told, if it were not for the Bible, the author would not be able to use the verses he has selectively chosen to create the Jesus who in turn hates the Bible the author has used to create Jesus. Without the Bible, no one, including the author, would have any source material with which to determine who and what Jesus is or is not. Moreover, if we do not have some of ultimate source of authority for truth, how do we determine what is or is not a quote-unquote cult, book, or otherwise? If we don't have the Bible, then how do we know what Jesus did or didn't like in his day? In the end, the author has an insurmountable paradox. On the one hand, the author has obviously looked at portions of the Bible and disdains, dismisses, or disagrees with certain elements of what the Bible says, i.e., Jesus is God, he rose from the dead, and he holds the keys of death, hell, eternal life, eternal punishment, salvation, etc. On the other hand, although the Bible is a, quote, book cult, the author relies heavily upon selected portions of said book cult as evidence in case in chief to prove his version of who Jesus is and what Jesus' followers look like. The dilemma is that the two are mutually contradictory and ultimately form the proof for the author's faulty paradigm. Following this, the author states, quote, We have to read the book, including the New Testament, as he did, and Jesus didn't like the, quote, Bible, unquote, of his day, unquote. Okay, let's parse this sentence. We have to read the book, i.e. presumably the Bible, including, quote, the New Testament, unquote, as he, i.e. presumably Jesus, did. And, quote, Jesus didn't like the Bible of his day, unquote. All right, once again, I have several questions. One, who is Jesus? Is Jesus God, the Alpha and Omega, the agent of all creation, the second person of the Trinity who gives us his word, the Bible? Or is Jesus just some guy, another human, and not God? If Jesus is not God, then what authority does he have to say what is or what is not God's word? If he's just another human being, then why should I care? what he likes or doesn't like about the Bible. If, however, Jesus is God, then shouldn't the author stop being an atheist and start acknowledging Jesus as God 
and not just some guy that is stressed out about whether or not some megachurch is going to approve of him and hire him as their pastor. Two, how would Jesus go about reading the New Testament, i.e. Matthew through Revelation, when the New Testament was not written and finished until after his death? How does one reject a book or a portion of a book that has not been written during one's lifetime? If he rejected all of the New Testament, then wouldn't that rejection also include the Gospels, which are largely an account of Jesus' sayings, including those which the author cites? Perhaps the author has his own autographed edition of the New Testament with only those portions included which are authorized by Jesus personally before he died. Continuing, the author states, quote, Confronted by bishops protecting dogma and tradition against Pope Francis's embrace of empathy for the quote-unquote other, we have a choice. Follow Jesus or protect the institution, unquote. In order to explain himself, the author says, quote, Every time Jesus mentioned the equivalent of a church tradition, the Torah, he qualified it with something like this. The scriptures say thus and so, but I say. Jesus undermined the scriptures and religious tradition in favor of empathy. Every time Jesus undermined the scriptures, i.e. Jewish church tradition, it was to err on the side of co-suffering love, unquote. Once again, if Jesus is just another human being, then Jesus does not have any more authority than any other human being to undermine or approve of the scriptures. If Jesus is just another human, then we have an opinion from a guy 2,000 years ago, and that's all we have. However, if Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, fully God and fully man, then he is responsible for giving a scripture in the first place. If Jesus gave all scripture, then why would Jesus, who is God, then contradict himself? Since when does God undermine his own word? It seems clear that the author is attempting to make the case that the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day are the equivalent of what he refers to as the evangelical church or conservative Roman Catholics. The scribes and Pharisees' traditions are equivalent to the traditions of modern-day conservative Christian traditions. Finally, the author's version of Jesus is as displeased with the modern-day conservative Christian church and their traditions as he was with the scribes and Pharisees' traditions. Before we can determine whether the author is correct, it would be necessary to correctly define several terms which the author assumes to be correct according to his own worldview. For example, Jesus' phrase, quote, but I say unto you, unquote, quoted by the author, appears 14 times in the gospel accounts. The first instance where six of these quotes appear is in Matthew chapter 5. Now in these instances, the author makes the conclusion that by uttering this phrase that Jesus' quote, 
undermining the scriptures, unquote, which in this case appear in the Old Testament as well as, quote, tradition in favor of empathy, unquote. Unfortunately for the author, just prior to uttering the first six instances of this phrase, Jesus says the following in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, quote, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled." Unquote. So, Jesus himself corrects the author and anyone else who would make the claim that Jesus was, quote, undermining the scriptures, unquote. Jesus is not destroying or undermining scripture. Jesus fulfilled scripture. As opposed to the idea that Jesus did selective picking and choosing of scripture and then said, any, meeny, miny, mo, this scripture stays, this one goes, Jesus responds by saying, quote, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled, unquote. Next, Jesus went on to clarify why he was displeased with the scribes and the Pharisees and what he was talking about by giving the following six instances of, quote, but I say unto you, unquote. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, quote, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and I teach men, so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. So here, Jesus compares and contrasts two groups. In the first group, there are those that break even the least commandments and then, by word or deed, teach other men to do likewise. Jesus concludes that those who do so are the least in the kingdom. Then we have those who both keep and teach others to keep the least of these commandments, who will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Finally, Jesus identifies who the, quote, least in the kingdom, unquote, are as the scribes and Pharisees. Thus, we conclude that the scribes and Pharisees were not keeping the least commandments. Instead, the scribes and Pharisees were making and pretending to keep their own traditions. As his first example, Jesus talks in verses 21 through 26. Jesus compares the commandment forbidding murder and then goes on to tell us that this commandment was given to reveal man's heart, which because of sin is full of murder, wickedness, and sin. Thus, the quote, but I say unto you, unquote, here, is not to undermine the scriptures which say it is a sin to murder, 
Jesus' statement is designed to remind us that without the new nature, a new heart implanted by the new birth through a relationship with Jesus, we are still separated from God by our old nature, which is full of every sin, including murder. The same is true of the next five issues of adultery, divorce, swearing oaths, revenge, and sacrificial love. Each has an Old Testament law with which either commands and or prohibits acts regarding these issues. In each case, Jesus takes the laws regarding, the, regarding these topics and reveals that it is the inability of man's heart, mind, and nature to fully accomplish any of these things according to God's standards apart from God. The interesting issue is that while the author here rails and lambasts those who follow, quote, tradition, unquote, and the, quote, institution, unquote, rather than Jesus, he fails to see that he and many other like-minded atheists, as well as secular humanists, have fallen into the very trap that Jesus is talking about in the Bible. The scribes and Pharisees denied that Jesus was Messiah, Lord, and God. So do atheists, secular humanists, and this author. The scribes and Pharisees focused on outward acts and behaviors of God's word and doing good works and righteousness as they defined it, while denying or knowing nothing about a relationship with with God, which is the heart of the matter. Atheists, secular humanists, and this author do the same. Each essentially focuses on the works of the gospel, i.e. feeding the poor, the sick, the needy, etc., as the means of salvation, rather than the evidence of a relationship with Jesus, which is the means of salvation. So to conclude, we cannot follow Jesus until we know and confess who Jesus is. Once we have a relationship with Jesus, we will have a new nature and his indwelling Holy Spirit by which we are stirred and we bear fruit to good works, including love, patience, justice, mercy, kindness, and many more. This concludes this episode. Please join me for part five. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Oh, oh.